everything for me has been about relationships. People have opened doors for me. Chris opens doors for me. And so make those relationships and don't think strategically about them. Just find good people and connect with them. And the goodness of that connection, I promise, will illuminate pathways. Welcome to Centering Centers, a Pod Network podcast. I'm Lindsay Dukopoulos, Associate Director for Educational Development in the Big EO Center at Auburn University. In this episode, our guest host, Chris Hakala, Director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching, Learning, and Scholarship at Springfield College in Massachusetts, speaks with J.T. Torres, Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Quinnipiac University in Hamden, Connecticut, about pathways to educational development and the challenges of operating a center of one. Welcome to the Centering Centers podcast, uh, sponsored by the Pod Network. I am a guest presenter today. My name is Chris Hakala. I am the director for the Center for Excellence in Teaching, Learning, and Scholarship at Springfield College. And I also happen to be a professor of psychology there. I am incredibly happy today to be having a conversation with a colleague and friend of mine, JT Torres from Quinnipiac University. JT, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. Yeah, the purpose of today's conversation with JT is to begin to unpack what it's like for a young center director to enter this field and what pathways are available to those folks as they go into this world. And what we're going to talk about today between JT and I is a little bit about how he ended up in the role of center director for uh, Quinnipiac University and, and where his career is going. Uh, JT, I'd like you to start with just a little bit of context of where you are now, what your current role is, and then we're going to back up a little bit and talk about how you got there. And, and we're going to go back a little bit, but I'd just like to set the context for where you are now and what you're doing. For sure. Thank you, Chris. It's wonderful the amount of layers in this conversation that we're having around pathways because you are a cornerstone in this pathway that I am currently on. So I'm directing the Center for Teaching and Learning at Quinnipiac University, which Chris used to direct. Um, I think it went from you to me in terms of full-time directors. We had a couple of interims in between, um, but we were one and two. And Chris has just been an amazing guiding light. Directing the Center for Teaching and Learning also comes with some teaching. I teach interdisciplinary studies, largely for students who are going to become education majors, but we also got our environmental studies program up and running. So I get some of those students as well. They're also interested in education. So I spend most of my time talking to educators and which helps me position myself as director, but also as student of all mm -hmm. these different collaborations that I'm in. I love that phrase of as student too, because one of the things that is often lost in the conversations that I have with center directors is the idea that no matter what we do as people being in education is we're both student and teacher. We always are. We learn from other people all the time. And that sounds like a cliche, but it's not. I am constantly learning from the people I interact with, whether it's going to a conference or just having conversations with my colleagues and my faculty. So, so I appreciate you giving that context. I appreciate that too, because it's also just like how human beings work. Learning is not something that we turn on or off. Learning is actually already always happening, and our role is to facilitate that in intentional ways. But it's not like we can turn that up. Every encounter is a learning moment. Yeah, yeah. So there are times it would be great to turn it off, though, wouldn't it? But it doesn't happen. <laughs> cognitive load, cognitive load. <laughs> uh, JT, I'd like to start with this notion of pathways and, and 
how you ended up there. And I always like to start with, and it, this is a personal thing, but I always like to start with, with where you're from and where you began your educational career in higher ed as a student, as an undergraduate, and a graduate. If you could take us through where you grew up, where you went to undergraduate, and where you went to graduate school, and what you studied. Perfect. Yeah. Um, this is a question with a lot of layers because of the my guide, my mentor, my supervisor, Clyla Brown-Dean at Quinnipiac, she will often ask me, because I'm a center of one, she will often ask me if I am able to disentangle who I am as JT from who I am as a CTL director, because so much of that in my work and my messaging and my story gets personalized. For instance, one of my big messages, pedagogically speaking, I try to stay as flexible as possible, but one of the more universal as possible messages that I make is that the more we can connect content to lived experience, we can create that perceived relevance that's more likely to motivate and engage. So I've my life story is also my academic story, what I mean. So growing up in um, in Miami, Florida, I was often challenged in the education system. I was being raised by family who largely spoke Spanish, but I was not allowed to speak Spanish. So mm-hmm. I had Spanish-speaking family teaching me in an exclusive English environment uh, process. So I was in speech therapy. Being in speech therapy also may also um, created new complications in school from phonics instruction to reading comprehension. So lots of struggles and lots of messages along the way that I was just not going to make it. Um, and then in, in, I went to a community college as a student. Okay. Um, it took a while before I actually saw myself in higher education. I was exploring the exit points more than I was exploring pathways um, for a couple of years. Yeah, I'm sorry. Community college. Valencia Community College in Orlando, Florida. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And then UCF was finally um, where I graduated from for university, for my uh, BA. Um, After, so BA to creative writing and MFA in creative writing, I was just really interested in storytelling, but I was teaching at the same time for the first time in this MFA program. And I started to make those connections between the stories of ourselves and how we learn. I started to see every course as a story, pedagogy as a story. Um, how we view learning, the goals that we set. And I started becoming very interested in a narratology approach to education, but I didn't know what I really meant by that yet. My first full-time job was teaching in a developmental studies program. I use those quotes because I'm not a fan of that term or anything that designates students as remedial. Um, But I was teaching students who were in that transition period where they were not quote-unquote college ready. And it was my job to try to get them to be college ready. They were largely returning veterans what we call non-traditional students of much more diverse age groups. And I, I started taking this creative approach to, to my instruction that was all about personal narrative, reflection, engagement. And that's when I realized I wanted to study this formally and got the PhD in educational psychology to focus on identity, to focus on how assessment is a story that we tell and how feedback is a discourse, like a dialogue that helps us grow. And then that got me here. And, you know, that it was really interesting as a pathway because this pathway was largely invisible for me because as I tell you the story, it's very interdisciplinary mm-hmm. and very personal. It was hard for me to find a home professionally when I got my PhD. I know I didn't set out to say I'm going to be a CTL director. I just uh-huh. knew I wanted to work with educators. And so I worked with educators in K-12 experience. I just wanted to design learning environments. But there's, there weren't clear-cut homes for me in 2019 when I was applying on the market and so I was teaching first year writing, but even then to get a job at Quinnipiac to teach first year writing, which is how I got to this university, there were mm-hmm. questions about my degree because it's not in comp ret, composition mm-hmm. rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. It's in it's psych. So they, they question who I am as a writer, even though I had that MFA in creative writing. So it, it's, it was, it, it's interesting that I did not have that home. I never felt that I had an academic home or pathway until this opportunity happened. So there's a lot here. Really interesting. I love the way that you find 
your voice in terms of what you want to do as you go through these experiences. And I think that if I can go back to when you were learning to read and write and you were having those experiences of working with people who were helping you make the transition to uh, uh, overcoming some of the challenges you might have had from being in a Spanish speaking house and learning English, I think that sets the tone early on that you had these challenges and those challenges uh, allowed you to see that there's ways through these challenges. And I think a good educator is really able to help students see through challenges in a way that's Absolutely. really effective. And so you end up doing the bachelor's degree in English, the MFA, and then the PhD in ed psych at University of Central Florida. Is that where you did uh, that? University of Central Florida is the undergraduate. My MFA was um, from Georgia College and State okay. University, Milledgeville, uh -huh. the antebellum capital of Georgia. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, the PhD came from Washington State University. Washington State. Okay. So as you were going through all of these experiences, what was your goal with regard to when you finished? Did you see yourself as a faculty member? Did you see yourself as a writer? Where did you see yourself ending up? Yeah, I'm going to give you the most cliched answer in the world because of this journey, because I early on in my journey, I had received so many messages that I did not belong in higher education. Huh? I really rebelled against this idea that I would have a career in higher education, but I never stopped being a curious person. I remember not going to class in high school, skipping school. So mm -hmm. my friends and I can work on our projects making films. We weren't skipping schools to be lazy or be delinquent. Uh -huh. We were working and we were doing things we just wanted to do in life. And, uh -huh. and we wanted to write stories and film them. Yeah. And we wanted to create our own podcast that we were just interested in media and, and storytelling in general. And so once it was, it was a close relationship I had with a professor in community college that finally changed my trajectory and allowed me to see that there's a possibility for me. And it mm -hmm. really was a relationship. And it was in a class that I never, it was in the computer science class and I know nothing about computer science, but it was just this person who connected me and helped me feel connected. And after that, the cliched response is I just loved learning for learning's sake. So mm -hmm. I actually never asked myself those questions on what am I going to do with this degree? It was more like this knowledge is really meaningful to me right now. I'll huh? figure out tomorrow when tomorrow comes, but that's also tied to who I am as a person <laughs> as well. I just, I love learning for learning's sake. And that's, that's the message I try to instill my students um, as it's more like just in time. Like I always receive that message, memorize these equations because you might need it just in case, mm -hmm. right? And that never stuck, but it does stick when I know it's just in time in this moment. So it's really interesting because the traditional path through the PhD, <clears throat> there is some idea of what you might want to do and where you might want to go. But for many people, and, and I don't know about your parents' background, but for me as an educator, I didn't know about the path leading to faculty because my parents hadn't gone to college. And so, right, same. And so the whole world of the academy was foreign to me. And even in graduate school, I was trying to figure it out. And it sounds like you were going through similar things. But like you, I was fascinated with the material. And I think that it wasn't just the content. It was the content opened up the door for me to ask and answer other questions. It was a gateway to get me to be able to think about things more creatively, interestingly, et cetera. And the faculty position is a way for you to live that life for a long time. So you end up there. And let me ask from grad school to your job at Quinnipiac, is there a gap in there from finishing the PhD to Quinnipiac? Or did you go straight from grad school to Quinnipiac? No, there, well, there's a gap, but there was never a gap in higher ed. So I spent a year right after my PhD in Colorado, working for Colorado Mountain College oh, okay. in a teacher education program. Okay. Um, it, was, it was a term position and I was largely a field supervisor. So I was mentoring students in middle schools 
or as they were teaching for the first time. So I would just watch their do a lot of classroom observations. It really was CTL work. I was always yeah. doing CTL work. It was yeah. just different audiences in different contexts. So I was there for a year and then uh, the Quinnipiac job opened up. It's interesting because one of the things you said about it's always CTL work. I think that for many of us, there's a draw that is either those of us who end up in this field, either overt or covert that pulls us in these directions. But I also think that one of the things that's been interesting as we talk about this is that draw comes from not just one source, but the accumulation of all of our experience. Absolutely. And going to a one-year position, I, get, I hear a lot of folks say they don't want to do that, but I, I did a one-year faculty position in Pennsylvania, Gettysburg College, and I consider it one of the most valuable experiences yep. in my career because it helped shape a lot of the things that I want to do. It sounds like it did for you. It helped me think through where I want to go, what I want to do, and how I want to generate my career. So, so we're always learning. You can't yeah. turn that off. <laughs> yeah, you can't turn off. So you went from Colorado to Quinnipiac. How long were you a faculty member before you transitioned to a center director? And were you a faculty member in a tenure track slot? Was it a different kind of slot? And what was the impact when you went to center director? Yeah, yeah. I was a teaching track when I came to teach first year writing. And I was, I did that for two years. But during that time, as I, I'm always doing CTL work, I became very interested from the first, from the start of leading the first year writing faculty development days. And okay. they're really good people, you know, a lot of them. And those workshops, they often felt, and this is not with criticism, it's just my observation. They often felt like an extended seminar, graduate seminar on comp ret theories. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was like, we need instructional practice. Like, can we talk about like how to deliver comp ret theories in a more practice-based applied manner? Everyone's really cool in that community in our first year writing program. So I asked our coordinator if I can lead some sessions. And then she said, yes. And I, I started doing that. And I did that for the beginning and end of the semester for first year writing. And then the center director position opened up and I applied internal. It was an internal position. Mm -hmm. And I applied and walked into that. So it felt like a very smooth transition because mm -hmm. I already had a model and I already had an audience of people who have heard my story and, and seen the message. And it was easy to start growing out first in the College of Arts and Science where I had my fan base and then just start spreading into the other schools once I make those connections and have that trust opened up. Yeah, so as a center director, what was your primary sort of uh, structure? So talk a little bit about who was in your center, how you collaborated with people, who you reported to, and the kinds of activities you do within your center. And I ask this because every center is unique. You know, Mary Wright's book describes a lot of this, but every center is unique and every center has its own sort of flavor. So if you can give us a little bit of a flavor for what the structure and everything looks like, um, I think it would help frame some of the further conversation. Yeah, so you are looking at the center. Me and that dog, stuffed animal dog back there. <laughs> we are it. I, I, you know, Mary Wright's book that you mentioned, I think to create that book, she surveyed something like 1500 centers mm -hmm. and close to 300 identify as a center of one. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would fall into that category. She didn't interview me. So I literally fall into that category for data um, as a center for one. And so my, like structurally, those don't exist or did not exist when I walked in. I, every, everything had to be opened up in terms of um, the faculty fellow program that we currently have. And, and some of the relationships that we've put together through external grants that I have worked on with the Associate Provost Kalila to secure for the center. Um, and then once those came in, we had some structures, but we didn't initially. So largely it's all been relationship-based. I say this very frequently that structurally I am a center for one, but I seriously have never felt that way. So what I do every time I host, host an event, I put out a call 
for not just a call for proposals and who wants to present and share work, but also who wants to be an organizer, who mm-hmm. wants to plan um, and, and bring people in and then also offer creative freedom to those that I bring in. So it's not like you're coming in to fulfill my vision, ground mm-hmm. up, come in, here's a vision I'm starting with. What do you all think about what this can become? Take in their input, um, do a lot of the organization and direction, but share the creative possibilities, which is the fun part. People will join for that. They want to be creative. They want to build. And so if they have that possibility um, where they're also getting service letters or they're also getting that kind of institutional recognition for it, most of my events have about 10 people working on them. And it's nobody who's structurally connected to the mm-hmm. center. And, and so that's been how I've operated. So I think that's great. And that collaborative, and you keep coming back to the term relational, I think it's so important that allows for a center to really thrive in a lot of ways. And I think that's really fantastic. And I think that as people look at centers and try to figure out how to keep them vibrant and active, it really is about a sense of thriving within the context of the institution. And you have to really understand the context. Uh, And so I guess I would be curious to know your thoughts on if you were to look at all of the things you do, what is your signature thing that you think is the most interesting, useful, effective among your faculty at your institution as it currently sits? Yeah. Um, so the institutional context definitely matters as you ask yeah. this question. So at Quinnipiac, we're pretty small in terms of our faculty, um, our faculty base. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but we have a small amount of faculty for the courses that we're trying to offer for the students who come in. Um, so faculty are largely teaching on a three to four course load, which means time is very, very limited. Um, I've run into some issues where I've been able to create some structures for faculty fellows where they can have up to two courses on release mm-hmm. and faculty have had to turn that down because their departments would not be able to fulfill their absence. Um, yeah. Or we would have to rely more on adjunct and the university's trying to reduce that dependency as well. So very, very limited. And because of those limitations, I have really tried to make use of that sweet spot right up leading up to the semester. And so I, when everyone's available and not only are they, is their time available, but their curiosity is peaked because they're worried about who they're going to see next week in terms of their students. Yep. And so they are hungry and they're ready. And so I've turned that week into a spark week where it's largely a, a series of events where people are meeting in collaborative spaces to design their syllabus with facilitators there who can guide them and help them. It's like a writing center, but for faculty and work on their materials with us. We'll walk you through what you need, when you need it, and we'll provide the information and something maybe like a presentation format, but it's largely coaching and mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we cap that with a large gathering where we do a lot of activities, facilitations, very, very interactive. Um, frequently, frequently, I'm proud of this space because frequently I will get faculty who message me for clarity when I'm hosting Spark and I'm sending out all the messages and faculty will say, is this a heavy, intensive pedagogical day? Because I don't have the bandwidth for that. And I'm like, no, 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 you come and you bring what you want and we work on it together and then they show up. So yeah. it's interesting how people are like, I don't have the capacity for a workshop. What is this thing you're hosting? Yeah. And once I say it's like, it's much more like an unconference. It's much more building together or, like, or a more artistic studio experience where mm-hmm. we're trying things out and sharing it with each other. And that has really kicked off really well. And, and we got a lot of attendance for it. And then that allows me to have touch points throughout the semester. So I get to see what people are working on. And then I get to push in to, with either program or department specific workshops or classroom observations, or to just help develop and to carry through and just pull that thread all the way through the semester from that one event. It, it, as you describe it, I think, and I keep coming back to relational, but it's very relational, but it's also a really interesting sort of model 
And the best way I can describe what you're talking about in terms of how I'm understanding it is I have two metaphors I often use, and that is I've flown in small planes before, and I've actually operated the controls, and you don't feel like you have a center. You're wavering around a little bit, or I've been on wakeboards before where you feel a little <laughs> bit, and it doesn't mean you can't do it and do it really well. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means you don't have those guardrails that some people feel very comfortable with. Now, JT, you know me well enough. We know each other personally. You know, I don't need, I don't need the guardrails either, but some people do. So the way you're running your center is unique to both the context of the institution, but also to you and what you bring to the table and how you're able to navigate the uncertainty of knowing what's going to happen in your workshop because faculty are bringing stuff to you. You're not bringing everything to them. You're bringing expertise to guide, but they're bringing all of the stuff to you. And, exactly. and, and that's, Chris, you, that's a different way of doing things. Do you think there is, we should articulate a metapedagogy? Because that is a pedagogical approach that I use in my class too. I'm very much a constructive. I don't give up on direct instruction. I know it's still important. Um, yeah. but I very much want to create spaces where students at least feel like they're the ones that are generating the knowledge. And then I can just give them the vocabulary to identify what they just generated. Yeah. That's also my approach as a CTL director. So is that metapedagogy? I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to coin that term because I do think there's something really valuable there where people are coming to the table without the structure of a it's it's it goes back to the beginning of our conversation with we're always learning and i think it's taking the ctl workshop and turning it into a more of a pedagogical experience for the faculty and for the right, exactly that, that's a really good way to put it yeah so so i like that a lot and i think that's really super effective now i'm, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit jt because um i do know and of course as always podcasts are somewhat time stamped but i do know that you are in the process of transitioning and i'm wondering if you can talk just briefly about uh, the new position that you're heading into and uh, some of the things that you might be trying to bring to your new position yep yep um speaking of pathways again chris always being a cornerstone of the pathways that i'm on I am I'm moving to Virginia to direct the Heart Center for Teaching and Learning, the Houston H Heart Center for Teaching and Learning at Washington and Lee University. This center is fairly robust in terms of the services it provides, not only to faculty, so it has that faculty development line, faculty fellows, but also student support in terms of a writing center, scholarship development, helping with academic coaching, peer tutors, and so on. And so it's multi-layered, which is fantastic because one of the relationships that I built here at Quinnipiac is with our learning commons. Mm -hmm. um, so for Quinnipiac, just to give context, CTL is faculty facing, TLC, the learning commons is student facing, and it's mm -hmm. been divided that way. So one of my relationships has been working with them so I can have their academic coaches appearing at workshops and events. So we're closing the loop on, on, you know, what's the student experience and then what are we teaching faculty and what are we guiding faculty to do to make sure that messaging is synthesized. This is already built into the structure at the Heart Center. So that's super exciting to actually have a teaching, a center for teaching and learning, emphasize the and, where mm -hmm. I can just bring that together officially. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And as you enter into this new sort of new position, I'm curious if you had any advice for someone who is beginning their career and thinking long range, they might want to enter into a CTL because you actually did it pretty early in your career. You didn't go through the tenure process. You didn't do the traditional faculty position. You went from a couple of years as a faculty member, three, four years as a faculty member into a CTL position. What kind of advice would you give someone who wants to follow 
some pathway entering. It doesn't have to be exactly your pathway, but a pathway into the center. And how might that look for them? Yeah, I, I will do my best to provide this advice because I really feel like I am figuring it out as I go. So I yeah. don't know if I'm making the right decisions all the time. I think one thing that worked in my favor for that early move into CTO was my degree and my training. Mm-hmm. Um, when I said I've been doing CTO work, I never realized it, but I really have from the day that I committed myself to education. I've been doing workshops for different audiences and I've just been designing. So I already had this chest of workshops. So anytime I was asked to do something, I had a trick up my sleeve, so to speak. I would like part of that advice is to have a lot of tricks up your sleeve in whatever way that you can. As a graduate student, I would get invited and and I would get invited by well-meaning faculty members, supportive, mentored faculty members to say, you should get some practice doing guest lectures, come to my class and talk about assessment. And so I would come into an education course and my, I had this whole activity called making learning visible as a way to define assessment where we would take constructs like happiness, love, sadness. And the whole point was to say, how would we ever assess this? We're going to do skits and you're going to act out the behavior of one of these terms on the board. And then the rest of us are going to see if we can guess to see if we can actually tap into some kind of agreement validity, (laughs) construct validity, um, or at least approach it for undergrads, what these look like, and then approach assessment that way. So that was playful and interactive, and it always worked well, and I loved it. And so when I got to move into Urban, I was uh, starting to get these opportunities, invitations, I would take those skits, take those presentations that I had worked on in these really informal spaces, and just polish them and try them again. And I, because I think there's some, there's a level of energy that's required today for mm-hmm. higher education. I just, I think that we've said for years that we need to rethink the lecture, rethink direct instruction. That's always been a conversation. Active learning has been a conversation for many, for a couple of decades now. But I think the imperative now is the war for our attention and distraction and just mm-hmm. the emergence of technology that can easily pull our engagement away from spaces. Just thinking about like how, what we do and how, who we are is relevant to the landscape of higher education. Just have those tricks up your sleeve, ready to go and build them out in any way that you can in any informal space that you can. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that it really is a collection of your experience. We, yeah, we, yeah, that's it. Yeah, a collage. Yeah, it's a collage. And so I, you know, my pathway is a little different than yours. I was a full-time tenured faculty member, full professor for years before I moved into teaching center work, but I was always doing it like you oh. were early in my career. The one thing that, that we're not mentioning, because I think it's a huge variable in our pathways in comparison is what also made it very possible for me to move in was the fact that there was crisis going on with the pandemic and yeah. COVID and people being asked to teach on Zoom for the first time and everyone was freaking out and everyone, like students were freaking out. How are we going to hold on to higher education with everything falling apart? They might have hired just about anybody who applied. Oh. <laughs> they badly needed somebody anyone with an idea in terms of what do we do in a hybrid environment? What does this mean for us? And now there's AI, right? So now there's a new crisis, a new disruption where everyone's freaking out. Once again, it's the end of higher education. So is that like, did you notice that? Were there external events, Chris, that uh, in the landscape of higher ed that, that created a pathway for you? It was interesting. I, my, mine was very intentional about moving into director workshop. I was, interested in doing a center job pretty early in my academic career but at the time centers weren't as popular and i think it's 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 similar but different in that what allowed me the opportunity was we went through a couple of periods of burst of center development and that's really when i got into the work the center at quinnipiac which was my first full-time center gig was quinnipiac decided they were going to start a center and a lot of schools quinnipiac size and other schools wanted to start centers 
around the time I was ready to move from full-time faculty teaching into it. The pandemic, in for me, just showed the college how valuable centers for teaching and learning are. Mm-hmm. Because like you, we, I mean, we did all of the work, getting people ready to teach on Zoom, doing remote teaching, learning about the distinction between remote teaching and online teaching, and what the whole process looks like. And so that's all been part of my story. But I also think, as Mary Wright's book points out, there's just more opportunity now as centers have become so critical. They've been building this out. Now, one of the I'm curious about talking about pathways straight up is that there's no unique pathway, no common pathway. They're all unique. Everybody takes a different path to get here. And we all have different backgrounds. You and I both happen to both be psychologists. And there are a lot of psychologists in this field because psychology often talks about learning and cognition and that sort of thing. But there's lots of other disciplines that contribute mightily to this work. Mm-hmm. And so the pathways are also unique. And then I mentioned before, and I think this is really important, is every center is different. Every mm-hmm. center is so different. And, and there's a match between the institution and the center. And then for a center to be effective, it's the institution and the center and the director and the staff that all work together to drive the mission forward. Absolutely, and That's a hard match. And so people see the highly functioning centers and think, I want that. But they don't know that might not look the same here. And so I think that's why I want to talk about pathways, because I think it's fascinating to hear. So you've come from a lot of really interesting background experiences to do the work that you're going to be doing. And what's been great is that you have had not only the opportunities, but you've been able to take those opportunities to build out your skill set so that you can do this. And I think that speaks to a number of different things about you and what you continue to hold as an internal motivator. And What I mean by that is because you're curious, because you see value in this, you want to share that with other people. And I think that's really critical for for CTL people to do. They have to share their love and curiosity for learning. I really appreciate that. And I I believe, um, you know, this is just an assumption. I'm using the word belief intentionally because I could be wrong. And maybe it's just in this moment in time and the match with the, the institutional context, as you say, but my work has largely been less about showing people best practices, do this and then do this and then do this Uh and more about creating a mindset and a disposition. Mm -hmm. I am frequently asked rather than showing here's what to do. I'm frequently asking, who are you as an instructor? And maybe this is because of my research and identity. Again, I get in my dissertation for my ed psych PhD was largely on like, how do we learn identities and how do those identities change based on context and time? Um, Maybe that's what informs that bias. But yeah, frequently asking, who are you rather than showing what to do? Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I actually spend a lot of time before I ever talk to a faculty member about what they could do, mm-hmm. uh, learning about them and what they do. Exactly. And, and I observe them and I talk to their students because it's not about what I can pull off the shelf and hand them. It's what I see and how the it's being received and what I can get from the students and all of that to put together an approach. So- it's, it's it's great for the faculty members, great for the institution. It's a lot of work, but it's rewarding work because mm-hmm. you can see the benefits of the work that you do as it rolls out to the students. And so I think that's what it means to be a strong center director. And I think JT, not to, to put too fine a point on it, but Washington and Lee is really lucky to have you coming down there to run the Thank center. You. I think you're going to bring a lot of really positive energy approaches, ideas, and strategies to really help those students, which 
at the end of the day, it's always about the students do more effectively at whatever it is they want to do. And I use those the words you talk about intentional. I don't ever care if a student is going to be an A student in this class or this class. I want students to use their college experience to identify what they want to do and how they want to do it and where their passion lies. To me, that's the sweet spot for what I do as an educator. And it, and I know that we share this opinion. So I think that that's exactly. important yeah. to Washington and Lee. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, JT, we're coming up on time. I, I want to just give you uh, the last word. And I'd just like to, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us. I'm sure the listeners of Centering Centers podcast will really enjoy this, but I'm also uh, wondering if you'd like to give any advice to someone who thinks they want to enter the field. Yeah, everything for me has been about relationships. People have opened doors for me. Chris opens doors for me. And so make those relationships and don't think strategically about them. Just find good people and connect with them. And the goodness of that connection, I promise, will illuminate pathways. Thanks, JT, so much. I really appreciate your time and, and good luck and stay in touch. Thank you, Chris, for sure. Thanks for listening to this episode. Centering Centers is a podcast produced by the Digital Resources and Innovation Committee of the Pod Network. If you would like to get involved, please email us at dri at podnetwork.org.